0: No, no, no. Welcome to the Vandenak Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trust and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management and leadership, and well-being. First of all, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal.
2: Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to interactive legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market, with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com.
0: Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWMLLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.
1: On today's episode, my guest is Erica Moorhead. Erica is the president and CEO of Collaborative Planning Group, Inc., an organization that she founded. Collaborative Planning consults with clients in regard to life, disability, and long-term planning. I asked Erica to participate in this episode to discuss life insurance in estate planning, Erica is also going to join me for some additional episodes. We're going to do an episode on long-term care insurance and long-term care planning. And we're also going to go into some of the topics that we find really interesting and have an episode on split dollar and discuss one of the cases that's been really interesting in the industry recently for life insurance providers and for estate planners. And we're going to also discuss premium financing and some really interesting strategies in that arena. But thanks for joining me today, Erica.
3: Thanks, Mary. I'm excited to be here.
1: So one of the things I've learned that there's a lot of different types of life insurance. While you and I routinely work with life insurance, can you take just a minute to explain what exactly is life insurance and how does it
3: work? Yeah. So life insurance is a contract between a policy holder and an insurance company. And the policy, I'm going to lightly use the word guarantees because a lot of things have changed in the life insurance world this day, but theoretically the contract guarantees that if a client pays premiums or a specific sum of money over a period of time, that there would then be a death benefit provided by the insurance company that would pay out upon their death.
1: So, there are a lot of different types of insurance. Can you give just a summary of the major categories of insurance types?
3: Yeah. So, they really boil down into kind of two different categories. There's term insurance, which would fall into more temporary type coverage, it's set to be there for a certain duration of time. For example, it might be a 10 year term or a 20 year term. The other category would be permanent insurance coverage, and these are contracts, whole life insurance policies or universal life insurance policies that are designed to be there throughout the duration of the insured's entire life. In that category of universal life, you'll hear things like variable life insurance, indexed life insurance, current assumption, universal life insurance, And those really just depend on the crediting method that's being used inside those contracts. So
1: can we just break down one thing that a lot of times when I'm talking with clients about life insurance, they really don't understand, and that is if you pay a dollar of premium. So let's talk about your traditional kind of old guard whole life rather than all the other variations of the permanent insurance for a minute. And I always break it down into the dollar that you spend. It breaks down into different factors what it's paying for. When you're buying the term life insurance, you're basically just buying death benefit. But when you're buying the traditional whole life, the premium dollar goes into three different categories as I understand it. And the other thing you could maybe speak to is why how that works and why sometimes you'll have a policy that you think is permanent so like what i tell clients is make sure you have somebody review your insurance because what you think is permanent or you think is paid up isn't necessarily going to be there when you need to and part of that's i think that it would help people to just understand what their dollar is going towards in that premium
3: yes no one likes surprises at least those kind of surprises right so within whole life insurance It's a little bit of a big black box. On whole life insurance, you're not going to get a statement that shows you exactly what the premium load was or what the deductions were for mortality or expense or administrative charges. Um, So
1: wait, so those are the three categories, right? So mortality, and that means the death benefit. So if you buy a $100,000 face value policy, the part of my premium dollar that's going to mortality is supporting that $100,000... Death benefit. Yes. Okay. And then administrative expenses was the other one?
3: And then you're going to have premium loads. So every time you make a premium payment to an insurance company, typically there's a load, a percentage, might be 3%, 5%, 7%. They're different at every carrier. That's that premium expense load that's coming off of the top. So you've got three categories of expenses you've got your mortality your administrative expense charges and then you have your premium loads that you'll see coming out of those policies so and
1: those amounts can vary from time to time during the term of the policy if I understand that correctly and so when you talk about your kind of again I'm just going to stay with the traditional guaranteed whole life type policy there's a guarantee that expenses will never go above a certain percentage is that how that works?
3: So actually in whole life insurance, the change in mortality or any of those expenses and charges, that risk is actually held by the insurance company. So because by pure definition, whole life insurance is a contractually guaranteed, there's guaranteed cash value, there's guaranteed death benefit so long as the premiums are paid. So where you would see maybe some surprises in a whole life ledger if you showed up 20 years later and said, wait a minute, what did this ledger look like originally when the policy was issued and why has it deviated? The biggest factor you're going to see, assuming the client paid the premiums all of those years, is just the difference in the dividend crediting performance. So for example, 20 years ago, if the insurance company was crediting an 8% dividend, but last year they were only crediting a 5% dividend, that is going to change the growth of the death benefit and the growth of the cash value. But very rarely with a whole life policy are you going to find a negative surprise where a client has paid their premium all of these years and there isn't a death benefit. It will be there in in a whole life contract.
1: So what if they get told, okay, we're having, just we're a little short on cash, and well, you can let the premiums get paid out of cash value.
3: Yes, you can, but here's the danger. Um, oftentimes, people think, I'm just not going to pay the premium. Well, when an application is initially submitted, there's a little box that the agent has to check. Do you want an automatic loan provision, an automatic premium loan, if a policy premium payment is not paid? Yes or no. So depending on whether that box was or was not checked, on the application will dictate what happens when the client doesn't make a premium payment. So if that automatic premium loan provision is enforced on the contract, that's where you'll see people stop making premium payments and next thing we know, 10 years later, we've amassed a large loan on a life insurance policy that was unexpected. So anytime someone says, I can't make a premium payment or I don't want to make premium payments anymore, with whole life insurance, you have to be very proactive about the how. How are you not going to make those premium payments? You can do a reduced paid up contract. There are a- assortment of dividend al- elections you can make. Maybe you could have the dividend cover the premium or you could surrender paid up additions inside of the whole life contract to take care of that premium If you don't proactively submit that form and that change to the insurance company, you may find yourself in a lapse situation or an automatic loan situation.
1: And so what would you say, because that's one of the things as a practitioner, and early in my career I understood almost nothing about life insurance except that you should have life insurance. (laughs) I'm being a little facetious, but not entirely. And then I started to have clients, particularly a certain age, that all of a sudden their policies weren't doing didn't have what they thought. They thought they had a policy that was going to pay 100000 It wasn't going to pay that. So what is the step or what's the action that clients should be taking to make sure that doesn't happen?
3: Yeah. So on whole life, if you're not going to make a premium payment, you need to reach out to the insurance company and you need to ask them, what are the various ways? What could my policy do right now? How could I move forward not paying premium? And have them run the various illustrations so they can run Dividends taking care of premium, okay? Maybe we see that doesn't work. Surrendering paid up additions to take care of the premium. Maybe that'll get you by for 10 years. You can run those options to see what is the impact going to be on the cash value and the death benefit moving forward. And if someone says, I don't want to continue to pay at all, they could always look for a contractually reduced paid up option on whole life insurance. Indexed so, universal life is a separate story. Yeah,
1: no, I just, <laughs> I
3: picked one to try and
1: make it simple because it's I think it's a really complex topic. It is. And with all the different types of insurance, so once upon a time you basically had your traditional whole life and term, and now we've got all these other different types of products out there as well. So I just picked what I thought was the easiest of those to sort of illustrate really what I would say and extrapolate to the other types of insurance is you need to pay close attention to your insurance policies. Because the other one, even with the term, what I see is sometimes I'll have clients don't understand, so they think it's renewable term, but they got this great deal where they bought a million bucks, they're paying a really reasonable premium, the 10-year term comes, and they're caught by very off guard when they find out that the amount they're going to have to pay to continue that term policy Is a huge amount. Yes. And so that's, to me, something I just really encourage people to understand insurance or at least understand enough to ask the right questions. And what you're saying is really, on a regular basis, to the extent you have insurance, you should have it looked at, have illustrations run showing you, what does this look like if I do this? What does this look like? And do that regularly. Is that a fair statement?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say on the universal life policies, it's very critical to be keeping an eye on those policies because the risk of that mortality expense charges, the admin charging, the performance of the contract on those, that's actually held by the policy holder, not by the insurance company. And we're seeing in today's market more and more of those built-in contractual guarantees on both the permanent products, the universal life specifically, and the term products are kind of being stripped away. So you talk about back in the old days of insurance, you know, term life insurance used to come with all these contractual provisions for conversion and exchange. And as the market's trying to be super competitive and offer insurance for, you know, the least amount of cash flow possible, they're stripping out a lot of these riders that are now ad backs well, as a consumer, how do you know what you want to add back to your term contract if you don't even know what's available? So making sure that you're asking up front, even if it is that 10-year term or that 20-year term. The term length typically refers to the level premium funding period, not necessarily the duration of the contract. So to your point, it might go to an annually renewable term option after, Some contracts, though, if they're 20 years, they're 20 years and they're done. Um, It all depends on the carrier and the policy that you're looking at.
1: We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our
3: sponsors.
0: Financial advice is useless without empathy. At Foster Group, we want to hear your story, your goals, your worries about the future. Only then can we help you feel confident about all aspects of your financial life. Come experience how it feels to be truly cared for at Foster Group. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com.
1: Okay, let's continue our episode. In a comment that you made that I think is really important is that there are so many different types of insurance and they change constantly. And sometimes, and, you know, I've worked with you on this because it's like, okay, I know that the industry changes constantly and the products evolve constantly, but I don't have time to keep track of all of that and don't have a life insurance license. So I'll call you up and say, I have this client with X, you know, insurance, What can we do? Is there a better product that they can switch to? Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes no. But the importance, again, is actually paying attention to the life insurance, not just putting the insurance in place, thinking it's going to be there, but realizing that the products do change. So it's almost like managing your funds in the stock market or anywhere else, is there should be somebody paying attention to it with some type of closeness. And proactively, if you're not getting a call from your advisor, call them and ask, is that?
3: Yes, and I think it's important to realize, I I tell my staff this all the time, there are no synonyms in insurance. If you say one word meaning something very similarly related and you ask that word to an insurance company, you're going to get back. So if you say, hey, I want to look at a dividend offset versus uh, surrendering paid-up additions, well, if someone just called in and said, I want to stop making premium payments on my whole life, There are a bunch of different ways to do that. So as long as you keep in mind that when you're asking questions to your agent or you're asking questions to the insurance company, word choice is very specific. So sometimes broaden your questions. How could I go about not making premium payments? Because there's actually six different ways to do it, for example. Um, So just if you remember that there are no synonyms in insurance and every word has a very specific meaning.
1: And so then following that up with questions about, and so what are the consequences of each of those six options, Mm -hmm. and what does this look like, which also comes back to the objectives that you have the insurance for in the first place, which can change over time, and we can talk about that in more detail, but one of the things we were going to at least talk about today was how people and why people use life insurance In estate planning because there's a lot of different reasons for life insurance and we've used the strategies in a lot of areas but I wanted to talk about that. So what is the most common use for the average person?
3: So most people initially purchasing life insurance are frequently looking for term insurance for a temporary reason. That might be income replacement, uh, protecting their family, might be a large business loan or real estate loan that they've taken out, and they want to make sure that that debt is taken care of. So that conversion privilege I mentioned for term insurance, especially if it's somebody who's expecting to grow and amass some wealth, can be very important later on. Very frequently, we will find people who started out with term, needing you know, lots of death benefit for as low as cash flow as they could get the coverage for, But now as their balance sheet is growing, as they're accumulating wealth, we are in a situation where we almost need to repurpose that insurance from temporary needs to more permanent needs. And those permanent needs would be things like estate liquidity, So if we have an agricultural family or we have someone with closely held business interests and they really want to make sure that their estate can stay together, that those assets, that company can successfully pass to the next generation. If we have taxes, we need to be concerned about life insurance can be a very efficient tool to infuse some liquidity into that situation.
1: And so we're going to do a more detailed episode at some point point in the future on uses of life insurance and in business planning, but I w- was hoping you could just give us an overview of how insurance is used for the business owner. One of those, you mentioned already agricultural ownership, but let's, you know, there's a variety of different types of businesses. What are some uses in that context?
3: Yeah. So anytime we're working with a business owner, we have to kind of look through and analyze their situation through three different lenses. You know. Business owners are typically taking some form of money, maybe salary, dividends, distributions, what have you, out of the business to fund their personal balance sheet. And so from that standpoint, we need to make sure that that cash flow to the family is protected if they were to pass away or even get disabled prematurely. Oftentimes, business owners are functioning as a key employee inside their business as well. So we need to make sure we understand if that business owner passed away, do we have a potential loss of revenue associated with them being removed for the equation or possibly an increase in expenses associated with the business? In either case, that's going to put negative cash flow pressures on the business, which unfortunately happens right before a buy-sell agreement or some contract may be prompting a sale. So so,
1: the, so let me give like an example would be, so I own a business or a good portion of the business and I'm the CEO of the business and so I become suddenly disabled. What happens to that business is they're out, they're CEO, and they may have to pay out for the ownership of the shares at the same time, correct? Right. And so the life insurance can be a solution to support, give them a cash flow to pay that as opposed to all of a sudden we've lost this key person, we have to figure out how to replace the key person. In the meantime, possibly, depending on the business type, the revenues could drop off as a result of you're missing that key person. You're trying to figure out how to function due to a sudden death or disability. And so that life insurance, that's usually held within the company, In those contexts, is that... Key
3: employee coverage is typically held in the company, and that can be key employee disability insurance or life insurance. We want to just make sure we understand the economic impact to the business if the owner as a key employee, or oftentimes we identify other key employees whose premature death or disability would have a negative impact on the cash flow of the business. And we can typically, depending on the carrier ensure their life for anywhere between 8 to 10 times their earnings. So if you've got a key employee making $100,000 a year, you know, kind of at its maximum, the business can maybe own about a million dollars of coverage on that particular key employee to infuse some liquidity to help replace them and offset any lost revenue associated with them.
1: So really any company might ensure a key employee, whether an owner or not, Sometimes if they're one and the same, we add a little level of complexity and you're going down the path of the buy-sell. So it's really common, particularly in closely held companies, but in a lot of different situations that we're going to have an agreement if an owner who is also an employee and maybe not, but dies or becomes disabled is going to get bought out. So how does the life insurance work in the buy-sell context? Is that different?
3: Yeah, so that's kind of the third lens. So we've got them personally, we've got the key employee coverage, and then we have how are we going to find the buy-sell. Because as we know, the legal agreement, the buy-sell agreement, oftentimes is obligating someone to transact when one of those triggering events happens. And so making sure that whoever that is that is going to be required or have an option to transact, clearly knows how they're going to be able to fund that obligation or that option that was you know inside of the buy sell agreement so life insurance can be a very useful tool for that now the structure of the life insurance whether we have it owned in the business to fund a a stock redemption agreement or whether we have that owned outside of the business through an insurance llc or owned by the other partners to fund a cross purchase agreement all obviously gets kind of dictated by part of the plan. I cannot stress enough how important the ownership and the beneficiary and the payer all being coordinated and intentional to make sure we don't create a surprise tax that no one was planning for.
1: And that's important on every life insurance policy. In my thought process, I've seen some really interesting where you you create an irrevocable trust and then the insurance policy, which is intended to be in the trust, is titled in somebody else's name. So I would just say that's a great point, but you have tax consequences or the money just doesn't get where you're expecting it to be able to go as well. So you mentioned agriculture briefly earlier, and we live in an agricultural state. And it's interesting just because I'm here and I do some stuff at national levels. I get regularly reached out to on agricultural issues and it sort of renewed my interest in terms of it because it's just a whole interesting arena but can you speak to a little bit how insurance is used in the agricultural world?
3: And insurance is very important in the agricultural world because people who choose to make their living in the world of agriculture they have to amass massive balance sheets there's not a lot of occupations out there where you have to have a lot of assets, a very large balance sheet, just to be able to get up and go to work every day and produce an income. For me, for example, I need a laptop and a cell phone and I'm pretty much set and that doesn't couple grand and that's all that needs to be on my balance sheet to get up and go to work every day and produce my income. So with agriculture, not only is the value of the land super critical, but so is access. You know, it's, it's very hard for families oftentimes to be able to even purchase and acquire enough ground to be able to farm or raise livestock. And so that liquidity that comes from life insurance to help fund other expenses, take care of other risks, pay off debt, and handle taxes in those illiquid estates where it is crucial that those assets are able to be held intact to transition to the next generation.
1: Or just sometimes survival before they get to that point, right? Yes, um, liquidity matters in a lot of other types of businesses too. Do you have some other examples?
3: All oh, sorts of fun examples. Um.
1: <laughs> it's my favorite thing about talking to you. I always have
3: great stories. I always have stories. <laughs> yes, yes. So life insurance can absolutely be there for what I'd call more of a needs-based play. So in a very illiquid estate where maybe it's hard to. Uh, maybe we're leveraged for the land in an agricultural position or we're leveraged from our live talk, and it would be very hard to get additional leverage to completely buy out everything we need to to fund that liquidity event that we need to have happen. With other closely held businesses, not only can it be important if there's no active market, right, for you to go exchange or sell shares of your business on, if you want that business to stay together We've gotta have a way to have access to capital to fund those things. In addition to that, life insurance can oftentimes just be an efficiency calculation. Sometimes we have estates that have liquidity. They have significant amounts of outside investment of their closely held business interests. But by funding some of those things on a tax-free basis, both income tax-free and estate tax-free because we have the proper trusts and ownership structure can be a very powerful efficiency tool as part of their overall plan.
1: I think that's a really great point that actually gets underutilized a little bit in the estate planning process. You mentioned that life insurance is often used as an estate tax reduction strategy. That's a variety of ways. One of those is the irrevocable life insurance trust. Can you explain that a little bit?
3: Yeah. So the trust is a great way to kind of safely own... (laughs) the life insurance policy. If you were to just have a child, for example, be the owner of that life insurance policy, there's a lot of things that could go on in that child's world, even an adult child's world, that could put that policy in jeopardy. So by using a trust, whether that's an islet or some other type of, uh, or irrevocable trust, um, it allows the family to kind of have a safe place to keep and warehouse that policy until the time that it is needed. Now, those policies can, when they're in those trusts, can be funded a variety of ways. We will have clients use their annual exclusions, kind of gifting the required premium amounts. They can sell policies to a trust that was maybe previously seeded with cash or other, op- or other assets We have also have times where clients will own the policy inside of a trust that also owns other income-producing assets, so we're not worried about how we're going to get the funds into the trust to fund the policy.
1: And I'm just going to footnote what you said about the importance of trust generally. It's true not just with life insurance, but in general, because to your point, beneficiaries, their lives change. You don't know what's going to happen. They might get in a bad marital situation. They might get in a life-altering injury. They might develop a disability. They might get sued. We have clients in high-liability businesses. And the trust arrangement in general just gives you the ability to consider the various circumstances that arise that you might not if you just land the proceeds in their estate. I've one too many times seen somebody get the proceeds of a life insurance policy and the next day a lawsuit gets filed against them or that's the day the spouse leaves or something like that. So, let's talk about the blended family because I think sometimes insurance has particular value in the estate planning realm when you have a blended family with assets going in different directions. You have any thoughts on that?
3: Yes. So, on the blended family situation, especially if both parties are coming to the table with a prenuptial agreement, um, life insurance can be a very great way to make sure that the spouse, um, any stepchildren or any children of the second marriage are taken care of to the extent that the family determines is appropriate while still being able to keep maybe more of the family branch assets available to, you know, the, the children of that family branch We also see that very commonly in situations where maybe one party coming to the marriage, they come from a family of wealth. Maybe they're going to be a beneficiary of that trust, but very rarely is their spouse named as an additional beneficiary. If anything, it's their children. And so oftentimes we will use life insurance to make sure that the spouse is going to be adequately taken care of because if the family is kind of counting on as part of their own financial plan assets coming from that trust, it's oftentimes missed that while that spouse is maybe raising those children, they will have access to some of the funds of the trust. But beyond that, they're really not accounted for in that trust planning.
1: And another topic that you and I both love is the concept of split dollar insurance. And it's beyond the scope of our Discussion today, and we're going to do another episode where we're just going to talk about split dollar generally. But we are both familiar with a case that came out in 2022. It's the Levine case that was a win for the taxpayer in utilizing split dollar, which those of us practicing in the area are really happy to see. That can you talk about split dollar just briefly?
3: Yeah, split dollar is a very uh, helpful tool oftentimes used between an employer and employee, or in an estate case between generations, where it allows us essentially to separate ownership uh, or control of the cash value of the policy from the death benefit of the policy. And so that particular case was incredibly important because It's the first time that the courts have ruled in favor in all accounts of the taxpayer. The structure though of that case really helped create a great blueprint for advisors moving forward on how to set up these types of plans. Just to name a couple significant points, in that particular case, the trust owned the policy from the onset. That was critical. Frequently, we see people, well, we're just, we're gonna apply for it this way, and then later, after we get the policy issued, we're gonna transfer it over here. I'm not sure if that would have resulted in the same, you know, favorable treatment at the end in that case, if that's what had happened. Where here, the policy was owned in the onset, uh, at the onset in the trust, and her wishes and intentions were incredibly well documented the IRS is always concerned, is this some sort of like tax avoidance scheme, right? And so her will, or her intentions, wanting the the policies to be for the benefit to create a legacy for her grandchildren was an incredibly important component to this case as well.
1: And it's fun, we've been talking about that case since it came down. I was recently at Heckerlein, which is the annual institute on the tax issues. And I think some great people gather there. And I I'd have to think, I feel terrible, I don't recall who presented on that issue this year. I think it was brought up in several of the sessions, actually. But one commentator specifically mentioned that you know every practitioner in this area should read this case in terms of, look at this as how to do things right. Yep. Do you have any last thoughts on this topic today, Erica?
3: I think you said it best earlier when you said life insurance is a very underutilized tool in the estate planning arena. Um, I do also think a very important takeaway is we think of life insurance as a contract that offers guarantees, but just knowing that we have to review those policies frequently because more and more of those guarantees aren't quite embedded in the policies the way maybe we think they were or they used to be.
1: Well, as we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases.
0: Vandenak weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.
3: Ahora Media Production.